0: if you peel back the layers of all this discussion about you know what what was originally meant by this i mean frankly a lot of what was originally meant by this was completely eliminationist and genocidal rhetoric
1: The Death Panel patrons, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreoncom pod Patrons get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. So today I am here with my co-hosts, Phil Rocco hey. and Jules gill peterson hi, and the three of us are joined by a great guest to talk about a recent Supreme Court decision rejecting a challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act. Eleanor Wade is an assistant professor of law at Rutgers and a lawyer whose practice is focused on family law, public benefits, and welfare rights. Eleanor is a welfare scholar with expert insight into how what happens in states can determine the fate and success of federal laws and is joining us today to talk about how this case relates to the dynamics of how we organize and separate the powers of the American state as well as family policing. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the death panel. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so
0: much for having me. I'm looking forward to discussing uh, Notorious ACB uh, and the decision (laughs) that she's laid out for
2: us.
1: Oh my god.
2: They aren't using that now, are they? Good lord. Oh, I hope not. (laughs) Instant (laughs) headcanon.
1: Oh, gosh. So for context, just, you know, for listeners who may not be aware, in mid-June of this year, the United States Supreme Court issued a ruling rejecting a challenge to the constitutionality of a federal law called the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is known as the ICWA. So in a seven to two decision, the Supreme Court upheld the law on June 15th, ruling that the ICWA was in fact constitutional and affirming that Congress did indeed have the power to enact the law. So the ICWA was passed in 1978, and the idea was that this law could stem the tide of white families who were adopting Native American children, taking them out of tribal communities despite the community's objection. So the ICWA mandates that tribal nations are given a say when the state removes an indigenous child from their birth parents, and it mandates that preference should be given to placing those children with Native families. So prior to the ICWA, over 25% of Native children were removed from their birth parents and 85% of those children were placed outside of their families and communities. Now, I'm sure, as Eleanor will explain much more eloquently than I can, part of the challenge to this law actually came from the way that this layers on top of the existing family policing system. And many people have been celebrating this as a huge, unequivocal win. And it is a victory, basically, you know, one of the only ones to come out of this court. And of course, though, this is death panel. So longtime listeners are not going to be surprised when I say, you know, The whole situation is actually a little bit more complicated than that, which is part of why we're talking about it today. And I'm so glad that you're here, Eleanor, to help us talk through this messy, but ultimately really interesting case and its implications, as well as, of course, all of the reactions to it from liberals who are now fawning over conservative constitutional originalist Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch to conservatives who are. Absolutely losing their shit and saying that this decision shreds the principles of federalism and facilitates federal interference with child welfare proceedings that you know are happening in state courts. Um, as I said, very messy. And because it's so messy, I'd love if we could just sort of start with some really clear context. So Eleanor, can you start us at square one? What is this case about? Who are the people involved? and what do you think are the most important dynamics that are at play here politically?
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I, you know, I mean, this case is about a lot of things. And I guess it makes sense to kind of use the framework of the legal argument that gets made here. So, I mean, a lot of what this case is about, if you are just, you know, a court watcher, or you're a person who kind of takes what's going on in a lot of these cases in good faith is that essentially, the question here is, is Congress allowed to be passing this kind of legislation? So as you explained what happened or, you know, what led to ICWA was a really, and I I mean, we'll talk in a little bit about how largely this is still a a sort of institutionalized system, but an institutionalized system of essentially stealing Native kids from their homes. Um, And there, you know, is a long history of, you know, boarding schools in the United States. I know sometimes we say boarding schools, and it sounds like, you know, like a nice thing. Um, (laughs) But, you know, taking children away, essentially, and kind of counting on the idea that if you removed children from their homes, you would essentially prohibit tradition and culture from, from being passed on. Um, and this idea that, you know, you could, in their words, uh, you could kill the Indian and therefore you could save the child. Um, and so what happens is Congress sort of intervenes in the situation and, and they do so because, you know, according to the constitution, Congress has the power to what, what is called regulating commerce with, Indian tribes. And and so what that means is it's always really been a federal government responsibility to engage with tribes and legislate over tribes. And states don't really play a huge role in that. So there are times where you might hear things like, you know, a particular tribe might be only recognized by a state and not the federal government, you know, those things, that's allowed. Um, But typically, it's going to be Congress that's kind of legislating in this area because as is discussed in in this decision tribal nations are sovereign nations so you know just like you don't have you know Illinois signing a treaty with uh Costa Rica you know <laughs> you you also don't have right. states interacting with tribes in this way because this is the province of the federal government and you have to remember a lot of this comes out of a time when the federal government you know the 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 future, what what you know, what we now call the United States of America, and then the United States of America is essentially waging war against indigenous people and nations. Mm-hmm. And so there is a relationship that's born out of that in many ways, and so that's kind of what the what part of the question is here is states saying, listen, child welfare is the most state thing that you could possibly imagine. You know, there is no federal. Well, (laughs) there's no there's technically no federal, you know, child protective services. There's not federal family court. These are, you know, these are things that states do. And so states are essentially saying, you can't tell us what to do in our courts. And so that's the dispute that that makes it up to the Supreme Court. Um, but the people who are involved are potential adoptive and actually adoptive families. I mean, one of the things that I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit is Two of the three families involved in this case actually succeeded in adopting children out who were placed outside their families and communities. Um, so, so those are the people who are involved here who are, you know, pairing up essentially with the state of Texas, and then uh, who's, you know, kind of the official litigant in the case, and then some other states who have similar views about ICWA, not only to say you don't have the federal power to essentially order the state courts to implement this law, but also there's this argument they're making, which you know, I think is really central to arguments against this law, but is not one that the court reaches for various reasons. Um, But they're essentially saying, you know what, this sort of nation to nation relationship, this is all a lie. And they're saying that essentially what the way that we should think about Native Americans in the United States is we should think about Native Americans as not a political understanding, but as a racial and racialized understanding. And so, you know, pursuant to this kind of new colorblind way of viewing U.S. law, they're essentially arguing that ICWA discriminates against white people uh, <laughs> by placing, you know, by preferencing a certain you know preferencing, as you said, uh placing children in their communities or with other native families. Um, they're saying this is racial discrimination against white people, which you know used to be kind of the province of, you know, just people uh, you know, like online or you know, at your job saying something was reverse racism. But now we we have in many ways sort of adopted that idea into the law. And so A lot of this is about whether, you know, being indigenous, being Native American in the United States is a racial distinction or a political distinction. And and ultimately, the court comes down on the side of it's a political distinction, um, sort of, and, you know, allows ICWA to to stand. Uh, So it's important, Mm -hmm. you know, to just note as a as a kind of overarching part of this discussion that, what this decision does is it just preserves the status quo. And so, you know, right. I think
2: we, we, that's we, important. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. So to call this, this is not a transformative victory, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. it, it keeps the status quo. And so there are some really important things to know that, you know, even now, even with ICWA, more than half of all Native American children in the United States who are adopted are actually placed outside of their families and communities. And that doesn't even deal with the fact that they are still more likely to be removed from their home initially by these state child welfare systems. Mm -hmm. Nothing about ICWA says that CPS can't knock on your door and take your kid from your home just because you are Native American, that is not the stage at which it intervenes. So, you know, the background system that is feeding into this, these state child welfare systems, that's not displaced. It never has been by ICWA. And so, you know, a lot of this really is highly dependent on states' relationships with various tribes and state compliance with the law, which, I think as this case sort of emblematizes, is a very big problem. You know, one of the one of the plaintiffs in this case is the state of Texas, who, you know, is on the side of one of these families. One of our favorites. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. You may know them from their, you know, hits such as trying to ban trans health care. And so much of this is so related to that, you know, this this kind of these ideas about who can parent children and these ideas about, you know, who who it's best for children to be with, these are all inflected into ICWA proceedings. You know, I think it can be easy to assume that federal law is like, oh, we have ICWA now. So there's this <laughs> like force field around the court proceeding. But you know, I'm sure you can imagine what it would be like to be a native family in a state court in Texas when you don't even have the support of state officials To that they don't even think this law is constitutional. They don't think they should be forced to do any of this. So, you know, there there's really a lot of this kind of state federal balance going on. But ultimately what the court says and and I thought this was actually the least controversial part of the case. And therefore, I think that's the reason this ruling gets made this way is, listen, this has always been the province of Congress to to legislate in this area. And so, um, you know, Congress gets to legislate here and therefore this law is to, you know, vastly oversimplify things just like it was 10 years ago. You know, it it is constitutional um, and we will save the race issue for another day, essentially, is kind of what what the court says. So that is a, you know, a long-winded explanation of what's going on. But, you know, it is very important to understand that you know, ICWA doesn't send a federal official to make sure things are being, you know, these right. are being followed. There's no ICWA yes, police. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Just like there's no ADA police. There's no ICWA police. There's no OSHA police. You know, this is really highly dependent on what a state decides to do. And as you can see, uh, states are deciding that it is better in many cases for Native children to be placed you know, outside of their communities.
1: Eleanor, thank you so much for that description. That was so fantastic in terms of mm-hmm. just contextualizing how much is actually going on here because it's so much layered. And I think in a lot of the reception around this, people have been celebrating these figures of before what, you know, what before Mm -hmm. this law was enacted. And so I'm so glad that you brought in that actual current figure, because part of why I was foregrounding that 85 percent is because it makes me furious to not see it mentioned that they've, you know, like, oh, this law is fantastic. This is such a win. Mm -hmm. Let's cheer on the court for making a good decision for once. And there's rarely the opportunity for someone to sort of stop and, and question, you know, is what's being left in place at all meeting the needs of the people it, it claims to meet the needs of? Or does this still, you know, materially punish these families? And so I so appreciate the way that you foregrounded that there.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is actually gets to a bigger kind of question that I had about the the case, because it seems like the, the simple like dumbed down version of of federalism is there's a federal government and there're states and what federalism is like when you're looking at the i don't know the commerce clause of the 10th amendment is you're basically looking at relationships between one government and about 50 right and more if you count the territories but they don't count because it doesn't same rules don't apply and nor do the same rules <laughs> apply for the district of right. columbia but in this case the argument that the states in the case are making is that um, Congress, despite the fact that tribal nations are labeled as sovereign, I don't know, in the Constitution, mm-hmm. uh, that the states have traditional authority over family law. And hence, if there's some dispute over exactly who governs, then you have to uh, l- like th- this sort of uh, I don't know, it's just like originalism uh on acid it's just like it's originalism but it's like whatever they want it to be it's like well we have this tradition that states do family stuff mm-hmm. and uh mm. the, the hence that principle allows us to say that like tribes uh don't but you know the majority opinion in the case basically says okay no uh congress has like su- supremacy here and that thing that you're bringing up states is just like absurd you know and i think sort of what you're hinting at in in your I guess, sort of more tempered reaction to the case, which is, you know, death panel, Colin, the more sober look. Um, (laughs) I wonder if you could say more about the way that tribal governments and states typically relate in the areas. Because presumably this is not the only area in family Mm -hmm. law where there's like a dispute, right?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Well, I mean, probably the the situations in which this comes up most in, you know, once something makes it all the way up to the Supreme Court is when you talk about criminal jurisdiction Mm -hmm. um, and obviously that's a little bit of a different area because of the way that the federal government has always had criminal jurisdiction over certain things. Uh, and so have the States, you know, I, as somebody who represented prisoners in the district of Columbia, where, <laughs> you know, sometimes people would have these like state and federal charges, or, you know, you'd get arrested by the park police. <laughs> so it's like, suddenly, you know, where is your case? Um, so uh, you know, I, I, it is sort of a warped version of a, a federalism argument to say essentially that because states have jurisdiction, not jurisdiction, but states have a power to engage in this kind of family law. Essentially, it comes from this. The states argue that it comes from their sort of duty and and their, their province of protecting the children uh, who are within their state. You know, they say if there's if there's one thing that's, you know, states have always done, it's protect children, uh, which, you know, we know God. is true. Yes, um, totally
2: true. Yeah, but.
0: It, right. And so essentially they're saying ICWA is a family law, but in so many ways it's not. It's it's a tribal relationship law because a really important thing to understand, too, is ICWA does not say, okay, your state your state custody proceeding or, you know, your termination of parental rights proceeding. It doesn't say that becomes federal or it becomes Mm -hmm. something that you have to deal with in a tribal court. It essentially lays out just kind of a bare minimum due process, you know, like a minimum set of standards, essentially, um, for what has to happen. And it lays out these sort of priority rules. But there are so many carve outs in the law for states to avoid those. You know, there's, uh, you know, lawyers will be familiar with the term good cause, which, you know, means anything you want it to mean at any given time. (laughs) And state court judges can find good cause To essentially, you know, not apply ICWA at all. So there are many, many states who have consistently applied uh, a rule that they call the existing Indian family rule, which essentially, you know, allows a state court judge to say, you know what? I don't think it's really important that this kid be connected in any way to tribal culture or language or tribal people, because I don't think they had enough of an existing relationship with the tribe before we started all these proceedings. Um, and so that's been applied constantly. And that's not something that, you know, the federal government is coming in to say, uh, you can't do that. And so the, the state's, The allocation of power argument, I mean, Phil, you actually, I think, articulated it in a way that the state's kind of wish they could have, but so a lot of it surrounds essentially what's called an anti-commandeering principle, which is this idea that the states cannot be sort of conscripted into enforcing federal law. Um, It most recently has come up in cases where, you know, a federal, the federal government might say, okay, we're doing, you know, background checks for a certain type of weapon or something. And so until we get our system up and running, we, we want the states to go ahead and do these background checks. And the Supreme Court says, well, you can't do that because you're 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 forcing state officials to implement federal enforce federal law. You know, so it comes up also in the context of kind of, uh, you know, punishments against sanctuary cities, for example. There's this idea that you cannot you cannot force state officials to enforce federal immigration law. You know, that's not that's. That's not something the states are in the business of doing. And so the states here were saying, you are forcing our family courts to do something, which is, you know, a pretty weak argument. But, um, you know, even the details are pretty silly. Like some of the arguments the states are making, there, there are these very minimal, you know, record keeping requirements. Like you have to inform the Bureau of Indian Affairs anytime you are, uh, anytime you are alerted to the fact that an ICWA case is in fact an ICWA case, and they're saying, I mean, you've commandeered me into filing this report, which as you could imagine, could apply to essentially any federal state program. Um, and of course, this, Doctrine combines with uh, sort of the idea that the federal government also can't use money to kind of coerce states. So most famously, like the Medicaid expansion was made optional instead of mandatory because of this. So you know the the idea that this is a family law statute and that family law is the domain of the states is is really kind of bungling what's going on here. This is in a way the federal government providing kind of minimum protections based on a long standing history of federally supported policies that forced removal mm-hmm. um and so and so that's that's kind of the argument you're you're getting from the states here and and one thing it's important to note too is that states seem to get pretty peeved when congress is engaged so so that's kind of i think why a lot of the dispute over tribal sovereignty gets you know fought on the battlefield of ICWA essentially is uh it's easier to say that congress itself has exceeded its power when it's legislating than that you know the united states can't sign a treaty with you know a, a tribal nation that that's a much harder hill to climb i think so you get a lot of criticism about congress but similarly that is a reason that it's important to point out if congress decided tomorrow that Iqua is no more, it would be no more. Mm-hmm. Um, there is not there. There's not a treaty that says you have to do Iqua. Iqua is just Congress legislating because it has this commerce power. Um, so just like, you know, during what's called the termination era, one of the ways Congress kind of removed people from these protections was to say, you're not a federally recognized tribe anymore, or mm-hmm. this land is not yours anymore. And those are the same kind of things because Congress has the power to legislate in that area. The court doesn't disrupt those things either. Mm-hmm. So so you have to understand mm-hmm. that a lot of, you know, a lot of what flows from this doctrine, it's, you know, sure it gets used to preserve ICWA, but it really means that, a lot of this is at the pleasure of Congress, and and there have been you know periods in history where Congress has been openly and just persistently hostile to tribal sovereignty.
3: Well, we saw it really recently in one of the other um, decisions this June, the one concerning uh, water, water yep. rights um, for the Navajo yep. Nation under the the Water Compact governing you know some some Western states, where the court was like. Well, the Congress didn't put the word water into the law, so too bad. You got to go to Congress <laughs> if you want water to be covered, which is just like one of these reasons that textualism, you know, but also originalism is just so absurd. But I really appreciate this context because I think, you know, part of the challenge for folks digesting Supreme Court decisions in recent years is that the role of federalism, I think, has become... I mean, obviously it's constantly shifting, but there's a Mm -hmm. kind of political uh, obscuring of it because when states are up to no good, when states Mm -hmm. are banning abortion and, you know, banning gender affirming care and, you know, taking these kinds of actions, people are, there's a sort of, you know, liberal political tradition of imagining the Supreme Court and the federal court system. And, and, and implicitly, even though this may not literally true the federal state sort of as there to slap down states and say no 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 you are violating Mm -hmm. constitutional rights and that's not often really what's at stake or or rather that might be true narrowly legally but it's not true administratively and I think that one of the things that really comes up for me in this case right is both the question of what family policing is and has Mm -hmm. been for a long time and the fact that this decision makes no bearing on the rightfulness or wrongfulness of that per se. Um, but also like, you know, part of why originalism is like, I mean, I feel like dropping acid is a very generous way of putting it in some ways because it's like, that would be more, I mean, it gets real creative, but it also involves ignoring everything that has happened for hundreds of years. And that just like becomes so extreme and absurd when we're talking about indigenous people because the political situation for indigenous Polities in 2023 is just like nothing like it was in the 1790s. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so it's like, you, it gets into such bizarre territory. Um, but, but just in terms of, of federalism, I just wanted to say really quickly, right. It's like, you know, part of what, part of what policing along policing in general, actually, like literal policing alongside things like the welfare state and healthcare really reveal is this kind of 1960s very Johnson administration great society kind of liberalism notion of federalism as a kind of devolution like giving away money to state and local authorities so the federal government is just sort of like a pass-through entity um, mm-hmm. that's just like I'm going to give you all a bunch of money and so then you can kind of basically do what you want with it and technically that comes with strings attached under all of these laws and you're not supposed to discriminating. You're supposed to use money this way and that way. But states and local authorities don't really have to because the federal government, the federal state is like, eh, what am I going to do? Come after you? Like we were both just saying there's no, you know, there, there aren't a bunch of cops, right, attached to a lot of agencies mm-hmm. that go out and do anything. There's very little enforcement mechanism. And so that kind of federalism looks very different than, oh, X state is being is discriminating and therefore federal court comes in and says, no, no, no. Um, often it's really about how the money is flowing into the administrative state that really, you know, is at, you know, is what comes up in the case. Um, but this like originalism thing, I mean, it's just so wild to me. Um, you know, it gets so intense to the point where in his dissenting opinion, Clarence Thomas is like, well, there was no Iqwa in 1789, so I don't see how there could be one later. And it's like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, that's an interesting whatever acid he took. That was a weird tab, but like this notion, you know. For example, this 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 kind of play that Thomas is really interested in. The thing that he definitely liked in Texas's argument is the idea that if we just dissolve the notion that indigenous people um, you know in, you know that indian quote unquote is a political designation and we turn it into a racial one then we can say ah colorblindness. we can't discriminate against white people so we can eliminate every single legal distinction indigenous people have under existing law right um like he's really into that yep um but the and the way he does that is kind of amazing it involves basically using history against its most basic facts. So, for example, he's like, oh, well, you know, um, all of these people are U.S. citizens, so we can't have special rules just because some of them are indigenous. And it's like, yeah, well, you know who wasn't a U.S. citizen until the 1920s? Indigenous people, (laughs) right? Like, there are all these things that happened that just don't appear in his legal imagination. I mean, they don't really appear in the main opinion written by... um, by Barrett, and they sort of Mm. appear in Justice Gorsuch's concurring opinion that everyone is fawning over for being so historically sympathetic. But it's like, it gets to this sort of root problem that if you seriously examine the role of the United States as a settler colonial entity, then like, yeah, this whole field of law is incredibly suspicious because its whole point is to subjugate people (laughs) and dissolve Mm -hmm. all of their power um, through not just warfare and, you know, forcible displacement, but cultural genocide. And Gorsuch, you know, might be like, that's bad because it harmed people, but ultimately he's totally trying to entrench the incorporation of indigenous people into the U.S. legal order, um, just in a in a much more liberal way, whereas Thomas wants to, to just sort of dissolve indigeneity altogether in a much more sort of genocidal way. But both of them, you know, really kind of are congruent in that sense. Not that I expect Supreme Court decisions to be like... Let's you know decolonize the United States, obviously, but it, it just is really, I don't know, this case to me just just makes it so plainly obvious um, how illegitimate all of these exercises of power are, and how weird and narrow, you know, these legal arguments become when you have justices being like, well, what did George Washington think in the 1790s when he was, you know, da-da-da-da. And mm-hmm. it's just like all this weird stuff about constitutional conventions. It's not weird. It's just like, obviously, every single person on the court is like, what did, you know, what did the white ruling class of that formed the United mm-hmm. States, what do I imagine they thought about indigenous people in the late 18th century? And let's just pretend nothing ever changed since then, right? When like mm-hmm. some pretty big things oh, changed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: <laughs> or even worse, like what did I imagine that their words meant? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, you know, they think that's that's even like those words they famously they stuck
3: like, to. Like what?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. They're they're, you know, as we know, they were so ideologically consistent. Yeah. Um <laughs> and, and you're so I mean, you're so right about that too. And I mean the thing that is so important to understand in this context, too, is that if we're peeling away the layers of kind of obfuscation that happen, um, you know, I and mean, before we, before we, you know, started talking about this, I was talking a little bit about how in some ways, at least you kind of appreciate that Clarence Thomas has a, a consistent <laughs> kind mm. of intellectual approach to these things, or, you know, you know, what's coming and, it, and you know, it's going to, it's, you know, it's going to obfuscate, but you sort of know what it's going to say, which I mm. guess I would contrast with um, the, the Kavanaugh dissent we get in this case, which essentially is kind of on the level of, you know, like why isn't there a white entertainment television? (laughs) Um, You know, like that's basically where he's operating there. Um, But if you peel back the layers of all this discussion about, you know, what, what was originally meant by this. I mean, frankly, a lot of what was originally meant by this was completely eliminationist and genocidal rhetoric. And mm-hmm. and there's this idea that, you know, they're, of all the things that they believe are so good that we should preserve, you know, one of those things is that genocidal understanding of what settler colonialism is and you know mm-hmm. i think the the way i've heard this you know most simply explained by people is the way that we kind of think of a lot of you know maybe like european colonialism is uh this is my land now and you work for me but the way that settler colonialism works is this is my land now you have to disappear you have to be gone and it's so and, and I thank you so much Jules for bringing up the the Gorsuch account because in so many ways it, I mean it's really uh it's it's very emotional to read in a lot of ways because so much of mm-hmm. what he recounts mm-hmm. is is real and it is mm-hmm. it's traumatic and and it's it's you know it's it reminds people of what things used to be like but in a way we've just sort of sort of privatized and diffused mm-hmm. a lot of that and so yeah. the this kind of you talk about him being historically sympathetic and i think that that's where a lot of the the kind of problem with even you know the more liberal framings of this comes from is it develops a politics of sympathy but it, it doesn't mm. really develop a politics of solidarity which is you know really what is going to ensure that not just that, that tribal sovereignty is recognized, but that generally indigenous sovereignty, regardless of, you know, like a national recognition is recognized. And also that all of the things that sovereignty is intended to protect are also recognized by a broader society. And, and I think Mm. when these decisions, these cases, they get marketed as a war of sympathies and Mm. that creates so many obstacles to solidarity. I mean, you see, I mean, partly this is because a lot of these cases are, you know, they're built on a foundation of basically lies. So a lot of the sympathetic arguments that you hear about what these families are saying, you know, they, I mean, frankly, it's not about what the kids went through. It's about what they went through trying to adopt these children. Um, We are supposed to, be sympathetic to them, but we are supposed to accept that our sympathies should al- should also kind of exist on the other side as well, and that it's almost like these this remedial legislation gets treated as some kind of just punishment for the sins of the United States, yeah. rather than being some kind of you know needed and and frankly very minimal protection for what is ultimately. A genocidal project. And there, when, when you have this sympathetic politic, you don't get a true understanding of kind of what's at stake here. And it leads to a lot of this, you know, we all care about the kids, but tribes, you know, so and so and so and so. But that just requires you to accept so many premises that are really, you know, not conducive to, to really understanding what's going on here. Well, and I think
3: that to just to tack on to that, I mean, something that might be kind of helpful for for listeners and for everyone, kind of just to reflect on too, is that you know there's a key historical time period that is legally and politically important to everything that comes after, including this case, and it's that you know I mean there there's something there's a there's an earlier period in the you know kind of in the antebellum era, the the Andrew Jackson period, you know, where there are, is a Supreme Court decision that affirms a certain degree of tribal sovereignty. And, you know, Jackson, Andrew Jackson famously is like, ha ha, right. guess who also doesn't have police? The Supreme Court. You can't enforce your decision. And that leads to yep. the Trail of Tears, and it's, you know, one of the most vicious entries in U.S. settler colonialism in a military sense. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's interesting because Gorsuch is, you know, notes that but actually the period that he's fixated on is the is the 1880s and you know Mm -hmm. i I happen to think that period's pretty decisive too it's often how i teach the history of settler colonialism in the u.s and its relationship to u.s empire more broadly Um, because the idea of creating classes of people who could be incorporated into the u.s in a territorial sense but not become citizens and not belong Mm -hmm. to states is just conceptually a really big deal, right? And so actually before, right, um, before uh, in the late 19th century, places like, uh, well, later it'll be Hawaii, you know, um, Alaska, Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, Guam, Samoa, before overseas territories, um, you know, because in the fantasy of European political tradition, there is such a thing as overseas versus, you know, mainland territory. Mm -hmm. But, you know, before actually even figuring out how to justify, for example, the fact that to this day, the United States has formal colonies, um, you know, it's actually the, the status of indigenous people that are Put through the grist mill of the Supreme Court to figure this out, and you know it's in the 1880s that we get this legal principle that Indigenous people writ large are not citizens and don't enjoy um, the same kind of civil rights as anyone else because they are essentially domestic dependent nations. Yes. They mm-hmm. are essentially the children of the United States, yep. and that is a really consequential legal principle. And um, I don't just mean this is like an interesting analogy or allegory. It's actually quite consequential when we're talking in this case about actual indigenous children, right? And so the notion, all of the ways that the state often authorizes its severe intrusion into people's lives, abducting them, kidnapping them, taking them away from their families, displacing them, incarcerating them, as essentially acting in some way sort of like a parent, Right over the over mm-hmm. the centuries, get strengthened by these sorts of legal principles, but indigenous peoples writ large. Are labeled under this constitutional interpretive order as like children in general. And so then it's, it's, you know, sort of notable that it is cases concerning actual indigenous children that over and over and over again come up because targeting children, kidnapping them, forcibly assimilating them, abusing them, uh, whether in residential schools or then in the mid 20th century through the white adoption imperative was a way of literalizing that concept and bringing it to fruition in the World. And so it's sort of interesting. I mean, it's not interesting. I was very frustrated. <laughs> I was very upset um, with Gorsuch when he's like, oh, those 1880s cases were a dark chapter or not, you know, very bad behavior by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, they're not. They're in just like a shift in the function of settler colonialism where it moves away from an explicit warfare. Um, and just like outright, um, you know, murdering people, committing genocide through mass death, to a cultural mode of incorporative genocide.
0: Yes, and completely fundamental to current yeah. law, like yeah. you say. It, yeah. it, I mean, even if you examine anti-imperialist rhetoric from that time, you mm-hmm. hear exactly that thing. Mm-hmm. It's oh, we we can't we can't take on all these dependents, you know. We can't integrate people into the the empire in this manner, mm. you know. It's not like yeah. it's not. I mean, there obviously were genuine anti-imperialists at the time for other reasons, but that is where a lot of that rhetoric is, is, you know, look at all these problems we've already got with the Indians here. um, And and we can't be engaging in that because it's not something that we want to take on, essentially. Yeah,
3: white supremacy became in the 19th century an actual obstacle to U.S. empire because a lot of anti-imperialists were just so racist. They didn't want a single... uh, further non-white person to become part of the United States. And so that th- this is sort of why the originalism is a joke, right? It's like, well, mm-hmm. that kind of late 19th century legal, political paradigm is the one that most intensely conditions where we are today. And yeah, it didn't exist in the late 18th century. Like, duh, 100 years made a big
2: difference. Well, and that's that's actually where the Gorsuch concurrence, which is, I think, attracted like the most attention yeah. in the cases, is, is maybe most confusing, yeah. right? So. The I think the legal commentary before this decision came out was that you know the the argument that the states were bringing forward was a real uh, meaningful assault on tribal sovereignty and you know I, yeah. I think extending the uh, commandeering doctrine you know as far as the states wanted it I mean would have been a huge assault on tribal nation sovereignty and and a huge you know underwriting of the power of the states over tribes but the the thing that I think is confusing is like Gorsuch's logic not just here but in a lot of cases that like well if you go back to the constitution the 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 principle here is is tribal sovereignty right but as you're, we're talking about this it's like exactly what did that mean so in, in a way like mm-hmm. what in as clear in sort of material terms, we can put it like when the court says that's what we're doing, that we're recognizing this, you know, thing that was constitutionalized, the tribal sovereignty, exactly what does that mean? How far does that go? Because it doesn't evidently seem to extend, you know, as far as the the pros would suggest.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of it comes from conflation of tribal sovereignty with this dependency. So, what I think we haven't, what we sort of circled around but haven't really talked much about is that as much as I do, you know, strongly think that these attacks on ICWA are attacks on on tribal sovereignty, what also is kind of swirling around here is this trust obligation that the United States has to the tribes. And so, I think something that such as quite attached to is the concept of a trust relationship, which essentially is very similar you know, it's sort of this idea of domestic dependence in another word you know we, certainly will not be, you know, returning land or resources to you, but we, we have decided that we hold in trust, um, to you, you know, the United States has said we hold in trust to the tribes, you know, these various resources or, um, And even that, you know, has been used in the past to kind of further subjugate people. So there's, you know, a long history, not just here, but all outside of the continental United States, um, the United States wielding this trust relationship to say, you know, you are if you are sovereign, We would be we would compensate you for, you know, harm that we have done uh, the way that we might consider doing so to other nations that we've harmed. But that's not how it works. What happens is if we, quote unquote, compensate you for harms, we do so through trusts, essentially, that are Mm -hmm. managed by the United States federal government. And of course, because there's no trust police either, what this means is often they're managed through kind of individual white people who manage the trusts of, you know, if you, if you're familiar with social security and you know, people who have like a representative payee, essentially Mm. that's what happens to um, any kind of, you know, actual monetary compensation that is, Uh, being claimed by tribes and tribal members. This idea that, you know, we have this responsibility not really to cede to your sovereignty, but we have a responsibility to make sure you don't act irresponsibly um, and that, you know, we sort of steward into channels that we approve of the you know compensation or the services that you receive as a result of again kind of our our past sins and so as much as yeah we could say Gorsuch is a champion of tribal sovereignty, he's just he's just reading the doctrine as it is this you know this domestic dependency mm. doctrine and and I think you know there this. It, it's. It, I went through so many personal conflicts reading that <laughs> that concurrence as well because you want somebody finally to be saying so much of what he's saying to to help people understand the the history, but at the same time, you know, even in that last paragraph when he it, he, I believe he says, you know, people, uh, indigenous people have come to this court mm-hmm. and they've often left with you know sunken shoulders and bowed heads or something, and it's just like this sort of caricaturized pathological patience and suffering that is represented in that that opinion. And I don't think you can separate it at all um, from, you know, Phil, like you're saying, this is certainly not just about this is not about a supremacy of tribal sovereignty, really. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about our Indian law jurisprudence, which says a lot more than tribes are sovereign, uh, because it 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 certainly, I think, would be more useful if that's all it said.
3: I think you're a hundred percent right about that, and it's a really helpful reminder that, again, because of the fuzziness and blurriness of the administrative sort of process through which those trusts and that dependency relationship is actually articulated, you know, even, even if, I mean, and Gorsuch, you know, even if Gorsuch's point of view became the prevailing one, or even if, uh, even if a law were passed codifying it, I mean, it's not, you know, this isn't a huge, huge victory. It's an incorporative form of settler power that actually reinforces the the political legitimacy of the United States uh, at the you know through the federal state and it you know it's just sort of interesting to me I mean you know I'm from Canada and I've spent a lot of time you know learning about about the differences between U.S. and Canadian settler colonialism and this mm-hmm. you know sort of dependency doctrine and the trust relationship and the federal government's role you know seems like the sort of American you know, distillation of the you know prior British principle, which is still in practice in Canada, you know, where the crown, like the literal crown, yes. right, um, which of which the monarchy is the the monarch is the expression, is the sole you know um, vehicle for relationships with Indigenous peoples, and in mm-hmm. Canada, you know, that means that likewise the courts have been by far um, the most significant venue for for making claims against Canada uh, not just for its past wrongs but you know for you know for example in dealing with unseated or what gets called non-treaty um, you know land in in right. Canada which is a lot of it and you know unlike the United States and Canada you know, in the US and and some of the some of the concurrent opinions reference this in the 1870s, you know, the United States decided we're done making treaties, right? So they just declared we don't make those anymore. Any any treaties previously mm-hmm. signed with indigenous peoples are still obviously, you know, valid, but we won't negotiate anymore, right? That's another pretty substantial historical shift yep. that, you know, isn't taken very far into account, in particular because obviously... ICWA has nothing to do with with treaties. It's not, um, you know, a consequence of a treaty. But in any case, you know, in Canada, there still is, you know, ongoing treaty negotiation. But in any case, you know, that sort of special relationship, which you know, liberals in Canada often hold up as very sacred and a good reason not to abolish the monarchy, for example, is another way that, you know, any limited recognition of indigenous sovereignty has to be tied to the rejuvenation and retrenchment of settler power. Uh, like, like truly in its most mm-hmm. gargantuan symbolic form, a crown. And then here in the United States, right, you know, in in the federal separation of powers in the constitution. And I just think that this is a lesson for particularly like Gorsuch, you know, it's just, it's interesting to me. I know the the bar for the Supreme Court is in the seventh circle of hell at this point. And so we're always (laughs) like, you know, here we are looking at this opinion, even, you know, Barrett's opinion is like, okay, you know, whatever. They just affirm the status quo instead of, You know, burning down the house. Um, But Gorsuch seems—I don't know. I'm just tickled by the way people are confused by him. Um, I don't know what the deal is, like because he's so conservative Mm -hmm. that, like, sometimes conservative textualism creates liberal, small l liberal judgments because, like, liberalism is fundamentally very friendly with far right conservatism, and I don't know why that's so shocking to people. Um, I know
0: that we went through the same thing when in Bostock, you know, he agreed. Mm -hmm with the liberals and it's like wow he's such an enigma right (laughs) and it's like
3: it's the same it's a really helpful comparison point right Bostock versus Clayton is this case that affirmed that gay lesbian and trans people are protected from discrimination under employment law and you know it's like sort of saving some trans people's asses right now because it just very plainly states something that is so obvious which is like if you discriminate against trans people as a class you do so because of their sex. Like, please show me a way to do it that doesn't involve sex. It's impossible, logically. Mm-hmm. This is not a liberal decision. And as we've talked about prior, previously on the show, federal court case decisions in joining, for example, bans on gender affirming care for youth are often incredibly narrow in scope, even though they're starting to stack up. and They don't really provide... Any material relief beyond returning to a status quo that was already deadly and incorporative and was all about uh, you know, increasing the power in this case of doctors and so and and private insurers and state mm-hmm. power to decide who gets to live and die under what circumstances. And this is a really great, I think, similar situation where, you know, as much celebration is being heaped on Gorsuch, even if his point of view is is somehow to prevail, which like that's definitely not a foregone conclusion. but even if that comes to be the case, like, yeah, it's not a, a, a lib- it's liberal only in the sense that it regenerates the power of the liberal state to subjugate entire populations mm-hmm. of people. And in the case of indigenous mm-hmm. peoples and settler colonialism, like this is one of the most vicious, violent exercises of power ongoing to this day that, you know, right. heaven heaven forbid we would ever even question the naturalness of this empire that we live in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's still yeah, it, it's still like you say, it's it's so important for people to understand that it's ongoing to this day because people read this decision and they're like, oh, good, Iqua upheld, like turn away, you know, mm-hmm. I I feel satisfied, I feel good, but you know, aside from the sort of general extractive impulses around anything that undermines tribal sovereignty in general. Like you said, Jules, this white supremacy literally becomes an obstacle to colonization in the United States. And it in so many senses continues to be that, you know, this there seems to be an ongoing frustration at the lack of success of the genocidal project. And I, I think yeah. that's where you get a lot of these race-based arguments in ICWA. Not only is it just You know, somebody says, well, I'm white, and therefore I'm entitled to anything. And you should presumably think that any child would be better off with me. uh, Because, you know, God has called me to to foster these children. But the white supremacist concept that cultural affiliation can be diluted Mm. also applies outside of the concept of whiteness. You know, like there's this (laughs) idea that you don't want to dilute whiteness and that's, that's what upholds white supremacy. But that same fundamentally genocidal and eugenic concept is at the root of this objection to ICWA. It's just getting applied outwardly. So, you know, there's this idea that, you know, we've tried so hard to dilute you, you know, where, why, why won't you go away? And so that's why you get these, I mean, really just kind of really disgusting kind of, you know, blood quantum type arguments about, you know, the, the white parents often saying, you know, this is just because of their blood or just because of their biology that they can't come live with us. Or, or, you know, you can, but famously, 10 years ago, the law was also challenged and the very first sentence you get in the opinion, essentially removing some of the protections of ICWA is this case is about a little girl who is classified as an Indian because she is 1.2% <sighs> Cherokee. You know, so this idea that, you know, we that this this. Blood quantum requirement imposed originally from the outside that, you know, there's a frustration that it has not succeeded in completely eliminating indigenous culture. And there is this failure to understand that you cannot dilute culture despite your best attempts to do so, because there's survival and there is resilience that is happening that is despite all of your best efforts. And so, Mm -hmm. because, you know, a, a white supremacist ideology. Has to hold that biology can dilute people, and therefore that you can make people disappear um, if you make parts of their biology disappear. It is so at the root of everything that's going on um, in these cases, and you can trace. You have to trace all of that back to what this colonial project intended to do, and and what white supremacy intends to further.
1: Such a good point. I mean, I I think one of the things that's been really frustrating also is if you kind of hold this up with some of the opinions that um, it it brings to mind, like, I don't know why I can't stop thinking of the um, case of uh, Penhurst versus Halderman, where you have essentially, you know, this is a case that's a a major landmark case in deinstitutionalization. Um, Mm -hmm. This is coming in the mid 1980s. And A lot of people talk about this as being such an important watershed moment for um, raising awareness about deinstitutionalization and kind of proving a point that the the least restrictive environment um, requirement was actually enforceable. But the thing that nobody talks about is that what this case also did was like it it upheld um, an interpretation of the 11th Amendment that basically Mm -hmm. confirmed uh, a kind of opinion that people couldn't really sue states necessarily for relief in certain capacities and that the federal government couldn't really obey states to to do certain things. And so one of the things that's very frustrating in the realm of sort of how this case exists in in disability history in the United States is that this is talked about as being um, the thing that triggers deinstitutionalization writ large. And what ultimately actually deinstitutionalization was, was like a protracted many years long battle over for mm-hmm. our federal powers and federalism itself, and also th- about you know how we fund certain things. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that is really interesting to think about here also is like this is a law that you know it provides no real material relief to the families, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a law that mm-hmm. that, that does not prevent um, children from right. being removed from their families. This is a law that establishes guidelines and best practices and procedures. This is this is not a legal framework that that makes material interventions and. What, you know, really worries me so much is that this, to me, has a kind of potential to exist in the imaginary the same way that the Penhurst case does, where we talk about the Penhurst case as, quote unquote, triggering deinstitutionalization. And as we talk about on the show all the time, that's something that never actually happened. But what deinstitutionalization became was like a large conversation about, you know, how to fund various state agencies and who was going to get these contracts. And basically, states wanting to get out of the business of warehousing and pass these along to public-private partnerships. And so what I really feel like is going on here in, in the aftermath and in some of the championing of, of these decisions also is like, you know, yes, obviously it's it's really important to record these histories. And, and Penhurst is a case that also records a traumatic, terrible history that absolutely does need to exist on the legal record. But simply Recording the history and reciting the terribles of the legal record and having these decisions does actually nothing materially for the people that are at the center of these cases. And that's the thing that's so fucking frustrating about all of this discourse for me.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up, Beatrice, because there's I mean, gosh, when we talk about the family policing system. I mean, how could we not also be talking about things like disability and things like resources that actually materially improve people's lives. Um, you know, one of the things the States are contesting that or the saying that they're commandeered into doing, <laughs> um, by the federal government is, you know, ICWA's ac- active efforts requirement. If you know anything about, uh, general U.S. foster and adoption law, there's a reasonable efforts requirement that states must, you know, make reasonable efforts to prevent the breakup of families. And ICWA says, well, you have to make active efforts. And so there's this, you know, (laughs) assumption that, well, if they're active, they must be more, you know, you must have to give somebody something that actually materially aids them in, you know, caring for their child as, you know, that's even taking the presumption that they weren't doing it in the first place. But if you look at active efforts and the way that they're implemented, no federal law is ever going to tell a state court that they have to, you know, give somebody a housing voucher to prevent the termination of their rights. I mean, when we think of active efforts, we're talking about things like you know maybe if somebody is eligible for food stamps maybe you help them fill out the application or <laughs> um you you allow of someone from the tribal government to video conference into the hearings or maybe you you allow for or you require you know a foster uh, you know, foster parents to to take the child for an hour to ceremony or, or something like that. I mean, these are really, really minimal and, and and not, you know, not the kind of thing that's actually materially really helping anybody. So all of these background, this background, just complete dispossession and privation of people that is often leading to engagement, And involvement in in the child welfare system, that's not being addressed at all. And and so it still boils down to this sort of idea that, you know, individually we can decide that a a family, you know, a a parent is not doing enough, um, but we're not going to really make any kind of affirmative, you know, if it said affirmative efforts, maybe we could say there was something different that that had to happen, but Mm -hmm. none of this is affirmative, you know? And, and, And so what you get too is you get the exact same thing you get in all child welfare proceedings, which is The original reason that a a child ended up in this court in the first place is basically so attenuated from anything that's happening. And and in one of the cases, um, you know, the one where actually the the white family does not succeed in the adoption, this happens in that case. What comes up in the state court suddenly is, oh, you're a grandmother. I mean, aren't you too old to be chasing (laughs) a two-year-old or a three-year-old around the house, Um, you know, or you have a disability? Are you sure that you can care for a child? Um, And and these things are, you know, even if, I mean, it's not a justification ever, but they never have anything to do with the original reason that this removal is happening. Because the original reason is just, there's this background assumption that, you know, policing families is okay, and we can take kids out of their houses and then make you prove in court why you should still, you know, be able to raise your child, um, but that is the the background thing that's happening in these cases, is there are not affirmative efforts. And so what you're doing is you're putting these well-resourced families against families who just don't have that amount of resources. I, I mean, if you've ever looked at kind of the, if you've ever seen those, you know, those like flyers that they hand out at crisis pregnancy centers and stuff, it will say, you know, list of things you can provide your child love and then mm-hmm. like list of things that an adoptive right, yeah. family can provide your child, like a Barbie Jeep, you know? And <laughs> so <laughs> it really is, that is the kind of, like the kind of fights that are happening in these proceedings. And it, and that does not change
2: because of it. And and that's, and that's actually a really good point because I think there's, uh, I don't know what's, if it's just my imagination or if what has happened in the last you know, as, as politics has become more judicialized, uh, is that one, we're just paying more attention to, or like the courts enter the popular imaginary yeah. now in in a, in a really significant way all the time. And they're being, you know, bidden to rule on, on all of these important things, which is, you know, be that as it may, uh, whatever that means. There's this other thing that happens, uh, in terms of like public understanding of, Uh, The law, which is that we have the tendency to like reduce these huge political battles, which are over power and over material resources to the to the fights that we see emerging in the in the highest court in the land Mm -hmm. and reality, like even an issue like federalism or, or tribal sovereignty is like, what does tribal sovereignty mean in conditions of deprivation, like material conditions of deprivation that mm-hmm. the courts don't have the competence and even if they did wouldn't redress like mm-hmm. you know what i mean like that's that's the that's strikes right. me that example that you bring up it just illustrates that like all of these principles of law reside in this prime like primordial soup of uh, like power and material resources <laughs> that is actually what we mean when we're talking about like the, the legal stuff. Yes, it matters because you know, it, it, it says like who is allowed to harm whom and, and, and so forth. But like the, but it really, you know, I don't want to say it's a, it's a distraction because clearly like th- those battles matter because it, it matters who, who the law says can, can harm whom. But like the, it, it does sort of, I think take some attention away from the, the rest of the soup that it, that, that mm-hmm. the rest of these relationships are sitting in. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, absolutely. And mm-hmm. I think is, is ICWA constitutional is, is probably the broadest and least relevant question to our sovereignty <laughs> that yes. you could possibly imagine answering.
2: Right. I kept thinking about that as I was reading the, you know, like, okay, there's, you get to, you read these opinions and they're like hundreds of pages long and like, you know, ultimately the, the, juicy part as far as lawyers are concerned is like the okay what standard of law did they apply you know how do they apply it what does that mean for future cases blah 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 but like in reality these are also actual concrete situations that are brought before the court and you read like the bare kind of like facts of the case and you're like okay we have resolved this like constitutional question Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that these like stark you know levels of privation won't continue to exist like that's that's the thing that strikes mm-hmm. me is like, I, I wonder how you think about that as a um, <laughs> does legal theory or the, the kind of work that you do offer any answer to what one does about that kind of, um, mm. I you know, for one of a word, just like, you know, misdirection uh, in, yeah. in, in, in our public understanding of these things.
0: I mean I think misdirection is the right word to apply to it. I think the there is a sort of dominant particularly in liberal politics there is this kind of there the the liberal obsession with professionalization is not something that is unrelated to the liberal fixation on how disputes play out in the Supreme Court of the United States which hears almost no cases, you know, so even though as much as I as you know, a law professor, and as an attorney, as much as I, I critique the law, and I frankly, find it to be sort of like one of the the least relevant elements of any collective liberation. At the same time, at the very least, as a practicing attorney, you understand things like, I can get someone out of prison Mm -hmm. if I file this motion. That is Mm a material effect on somebody's life. But by the time these disputes are distilled Mm -hmm. and they make their way to the Supreme Court, they really cloud the public understanding of the underlying issue. I mean, not to be like the Supreme Court is a psyop, but, you know, I really do <laughs> think that in so many ways, like you're saying, this has a, it has a demobilizing effect on people to think mm-hmm. that the way that disputes are resolved happens this way. And even when these disputes do happen this way, there are underlying things that are happening. So, you know, I I teach poverty law and when I, I teach that class quite broadly, I, I really Really talk about, you know, I say, you know, there's there a lot of people, poverty law to them means like public benefits. And to me, that is just so that's so far away from really what it means, what poverty yeah. law means. And when I teach it, Before we talk about cases at all, we talk about the lives of the people that, you know, were the lives of the people that this court is adjudicating disputes over. And we talk about the real stories of people that are eventually getting distilled into these questions like, is ICWA constitutional? And so what happens is really you do the distillation forces you to remove detail. And it Mm. also forces you to think that the most important question is what power Congress has here. And I mean, really the, and, and obviously, you know, you don't want to say it, I I, want to avoid saying that, you know, everything is a distraction from something else, but, but really in so many ways, this case, the way that this case makes it to the court, the way the questions get phrased are a distraction in a lot of ways. I even think in some way, you know, the obviously our new queen, Neil Gorsuch, you know, <laughs> who wrote this, this opinion. I, I mean, I think there's another way to think of this, frankly, which is I think and well, perhaps I hope that Neil Gorsuch is threatened by the concept of a fragile peace between tribes and the United States government. Mm. You know, that is something I frankly long for is for you know the the federal government to have a genuine fear and concern about reaction from tribes and i think that as you're seeing you know you're seeing broad based indigenous resist- resistance to carbon and you're seeing you know indigenous stewardship of land that is really kind of threatening a lot of mm-hmm. the growth that people are you know really trying to infuse into this kind of extractive economy And as you I mean, I don't think we can forget things like, you know, standing rock where Mm -hmm. it wasn't just Mm -hmm. indigenous people. It was a solidarity ethic that was developing. And the federal government ensured that they did their best to shut that down quite quickly. And so I think what you in a lot of ways, we also need to see this distillation into these sort of big constitutional questions as in some ways a way to sort of placate anybody who might be interested in developing solidarity with Indigenous people and with Indigenous communities as you know what? It's all right. We've got the Supreme Court and they're here to make sure that we have this backstop. But in so many ways, even just like these federal laws that get erected that don't actually make states really do anything they don't want to do, these are illusory backstops. And so, you know, it's like if I if there's anything I could tell Somebody who reads this and is, you know, not personally recognizing the victory that this is for, you know, them or their family, for anybody who's reading this and going, this is a major victory for indigenous rights. What I would want those people to recognize is consider the ways in which this is designed to placate you and make you Mm. think that there is somebody taking care of this and that you don't really need to develop an ethic of solidarity with indigenous people. And frankly, I also think that's why you see a lot of these conservative commentators just get absolutely apoplectic about this because (laughs) I think they really think you know, related to domestic dependency, I think they think you need to start punishing these people for what they are doing. You know, you need to start laying down the firm hand of the law on this resistance to extraction, on this like resistance to chipping away at sovereignty, Uh, lay down the law over this cultural resilience, you know? And so that that is why I think There's a sort of there's a sort of I just got here vibe to a lot of the liberal commentary around Mm -hmm. this for a reason. And it's that reactionaries have always been quite attuned to indigenous law for very Mm -hmm. specific reasons. And those reasons are the exact reasons that people who see themselves on the other side need to start developing a solidarity ethic now. You know, Mm -hmm. like like Ah. like I've said, it, it cannot be an ethic of sympathy, because that's not going to go very far. Um, it needs to be a solidaristic ethic. And, you know, if I had to be as, if I had to be as hopeful as possible, I would say that perhaps people like Neil Gorsuch see that developing and they want to put a stop to it.
1: I love that framing. And honestly, it's consistent with his decision in um, the, what is it, lacta Flambo band of like Superior Chippewa Indians versus Cochlin, where mm-hmm. he was like, the only dissenting opinion and his opinion is like his his dissent is like oh you know you can't like this was a case involving um a, a bankruptcy claim and whether or not bankruptcy law applied to tribal nations and his His dissent is like this weird screed about how, like exactly how he finds tribal sovereignty to be different from like French sovereignty or British sovereignty and sort of defining Mm. that relationship as this privileged special relationship that only exists between tribal nations and the federal government. I mean, I think framing it in that way honestly is consistent with, with this behavior, whether it's, you know, people... Um, like George Will in the Washington Post being like an Ooh. asshole, you know, or, you know, Neil Gorsuch's opinion that that appears to be sort of, um, yes, queening um, tribal sovereignty as like his issue and and throwing a kind of, you know, conservative weight behind that. You know, it does it does uh, smell of fear, I think, a little bit. And that honestly does. That's it is hopeful, I think, to to think about it that way, because otherwise, like, What are we doing? Like looking at the Supreme Court to be the arbiter of like what can happen to us or what can not happen to us? Like that's not a that's not a life I want to live or a way I want to think about the Supreme Court. I'd love to prefer to think about them as fucking afraid of us, to be honest.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think like if we just come back to what this decision preserves, a family policing system, it adjudicated a spat between you know enumerated levels of constitutional power, okay, but it preserved a mm-hmm. family policing system. Yep. And if we think about you know the arc of the history of the modern administrative state, there's actually no clearer to my mind example than the project of uh, of waging genocidal war against indigenous kinship structures to undermine. Mm-hmm. Their sovereignty and their polities. There is no clearer example than children, right? Because what this mm-hmm. decision essentially ratifies, and literally, I mean, like the the, the sweeping historical arcs that come up, uh, whether you're uh, Gorsuch, you know, or or Thomas, or whomever, or Barrett, they all end up agreeing, is that the purpose of the family policing state is to continue waging warfare against mm-hmm. uh, indigenous people through non-military means. And so it's actually in some ways, right, the example of of, of how the, the state wages political warfare against indigenous uh, peoples is even stronger, more literal than any of the other examples. The primordial other example is the way that. You know the 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 child uh, quote unquote protective state is is designed as a means to politically attack uh, the black family and to attack yep. black uh, political organizations. But in the case of indigenous uh, sovereignty and polities, it's literal. The United States uh, formally decided to end a period of literal warfare <laughs> that went yeah. on for hundreds of years and switched. To a form of warfare executed through the administrative state. It is a switch from literal using guns to commit genocide to using uh, the administrative state and the levers of quote unquote culture, either you know, to commit genocide. But this is it's literal. The purpose of settler colonialism, which distinguishes it from other forms of colonialism, is that settlers are here to replace the people who are already living in a given territory and land. And so that replacement for a long time was quite literal. It was a biological uh, event, you know, historically, and then it switched Mm -hmm. to a cultural one through a form of assimilation that would just as violently, um, but without literally necessarily always erasing human beings, would try to destroy them. And so that is preserved. That is the status quo that is preserved here. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately yeah it's it's just impossible for me not to see this case as very anxiously Uh, trying to reassert the legitimacy of a settler state when I I think the writing is on the wall in so many ways because, of course, the project of genocide has failed manifestly and spectacularly. Mm -hmm. And Indigenous resurgence has never been uh, stronger or more connected, not just across the, you know, what is the United States, but actually across, you know, uh, Western international Mm -hmm. borders. And I think so much of it then, as we're seeing in other cases, has to do with climate change. and the fact that the wholesale destruction of the planet through the environment uh, is something deeply contested by many indigenous polities and many kinds of groups and forms of solidarity. Yeah, with with non-indigenous people uh, have often taken the form of environmental cause. Uh, But, you know, when, where, and how can it continue to take the, the form of things like the administrative state, the family policing state, and this fundamental question of of how you know settler alibis just like anti black alibis just like heteronormative alibis or anti trans alibis all you know kind of find their find their footing in a similar sort of ruse about the sort of you know, sympathetic exercise of rational power, where some somewhere Mm -hmm. in some imaginary federal office, some technocrat who's sort of like a cop is making humane decisions. Well, that's (laughs) literally not happening. But the fantasy of that happening is abutting, you know, some of the most heinous quotidian violence uh, that we are all complicit with you know, and that is yeah. as part of an ongoing centuries long, mm-hmm. you know, legacy. So it's just, yeah. Wow. I mean, this conversation yeah. has been so clarifying for me mm-hmm. about how these pieces fit Agreed. together.
1: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: This has been really fantastic. Thank you. I, um, I, I, I think it's, it's just so clarifying and it's so it's yeah, it's, it's just so, so 100% true that there are fewer concepts that are, that are more threatening to American capitalism mm-hmm. than the concept that we are all related. And we say from from the sky down to the core of the earth, we're all related. And and that is a quite threatening concept uh, mm-hmm. to the the idea of the privatized nuclear family pursuing capitalist ends. So I think we pretty much covered it.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And this has been honestly so much fun. I feel like I've learned so much today. Um, I think this is the perfect place to leave it. And Eleanor, thank you so, so much for joining us. This was awesome. And I'm, I'm really glad that you were here today to share your expertise with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. And if you want to follow Eleanor, she is on Twitter, at underscore Eleanor Wade. Patrons, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for All Now, Solidarity Forever. Stay alive another week. Some faces.